Hey, good morning everyone. My name is also Naomi um, and I'll be reading the Bible for us this morning. Um, so the passage come, comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to to come eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of it. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. Hi everyone. Great to see you all today. Great to be here again to open up our next uh, part of the Gospel of Luke. As we begin, I want you to think about some hard things. What are some hard things that you have done in life? Here's three that I find, I've found really hard. The first thing is waiting in line. I remember back in the early 2000s, I stood in line for U2 tickets for three hours because I had to go to the news agency because you couldn't get them online and just keep clicking refresh. And I got two tickets and didn't end up going to the concert after all that. So I had to wait in line. I hated it, every moment of it, the waiting. What about Parenting. That's really hard. Um, if you're a parent, you'll know that. If you're not a parent, then you know that too, actually, that parenting is hard work. Um, some of you young parents in here and you're going in between snores. It's really hard. Um, it is. Alex is nodding his head. It's, it's true. Or, for me, this and shivers down my spine. It's the indic- indicatives of omega verbs, present and imperfect indicative. You've got present, active, first person, second person. This is Greek, and it just, it was really, really hard for a whole year of my life to learn this. Uh, Joy has just finished her study as well, not in Greek, but in, um, just recently, and that was really hard. Studying is often a really hard, slow slog, and I found Greek the hardest thing I've actually ever had to do, study-wise. Um, don't ask me about too much of that now, because it's not all there, but it's really tricky. What are some hard things that you've done? What about this? Have you thought about this being a hard thing? Something Jesus said in our reading from today, in Luke chapter 18, verse 24, he said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is in reply to a young man who wants to know how to get eternal life. In the very beginning of chapter 18, verse 8, he thinks he's good enough, he's lived a nice life, he's got money, Something's nagging at him, isn't it? Something's not satisfying about the life he's currently got. He still has questions. He's still anxious about what he has to do. Is it really enough? And so he goes to Jesus one day and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And it turns out, as we're going to discover today, the problem wasn't his goodness. It was actually the value that he placed on wealth. The problem wasn't that he was a good guy. The problem was he loved money all too much. And so Jesus gives this young man a warning, a warning for us to listen to as well, because it may stop you from coming to Jesus. It may stop me from coming to Jesus too. Wake up and listen. You know, making money might be easy for some of you. Some of you don't have a particular issue with that. But living to show that the kingdom of God is your true wealth that could very well be the hardest thing you will ever have to do in your life. It's hard, isn't it? Because affluence, a comfortable life, money, security, nice things, they're often placed where God should be in our life. And Jesus knows just how dangerous that temptation can be. I mean, how many people that you know of how many people that you know of have walked away from Jesus, walked away from the church, for a career or for money, trying to gain the whole world, but in the process they've lost their soul. I mean, after all, what are crowns and riches without Jesus anyway? Maybe you're here and you say, Luke, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not well off. If you knew my bank account, (laughs) I have got no problem being this rich ruler because there is nothing rich in my name ever. If I die, I'm going to inherit a few pieces of toast in in the bottom of the toaster and that's it. But don't worry, because Jesus addresses you in the second half when he says, when the disciples say, who could be saved? We can wonder that if living the way of Jesus is really a greater worth than riches. I mean, you might have followed Jesus excitedly a number of years ago, yet at this point in your life, you're going, you know what, is it really worth it? Because a little bit more career a little bit more study, a little bit more just work, and I could really make it in life, and I'd be able to go up the ladder, and I could be more satisfied and content than what I am now, and if I just sacrifice a few things now, I have great gain later. And Jesus gives you this great, big, warm, reassuring, joyful, amazing promise to fill you with today as you walk out of here. And he says, you know what? It is worth it. The kingdom of God is worth it. You know, Luke, in writing his gospel, it's the one gospel of Jesus, the four gospels we have, that really speaks to and addresses money and wealth like none of the other gospels do. It's been said that Luke is the evangelist to the rich. He has more lengthy passages about wealth and money than any of the other Gospels. And he talks about those that are poor, those that are not wealthy, more than any of the other Gospels too. What you see when you read the book of Luke and the rest of the New Testament is that it is not anti-rich. Don't hear me saying that. Money bad, no. 
it's anti-status quo when it comes to how we use our wealth. The New Testament is anti-status quo with how we use our wealth, not having it. You see, God actually cares way less about your wealth and status than you do. He's more interested in what sort of role it plays in your life. And if wealth, the pursuit of that, is going to stop you from coming into his kingdom. That's his concern. Not that you have it or don't. What role does it play in your life? So here's a big question today where we're going to pad this out. Is this making sense? That's not a question. That's a picture of a man with a car. He's very wealthy. I should have changed that earlier. Here's the question. Jesus doesn't want anything to get in the way of the gospel in our lives, especially wealth. Jesus doesn't want anything to get in the way of the gospel in our lives, especially wealth. And that's the one hard thing. I've called this talk the hardest thing. And that's what it is. Navigating wealth, the role it plays in our life and in the kingdom of God. And today we're going to see, is that true? Is that big idea what this passage is teaching? I'm going to explain that to you and hopefully at the end you'll say, yeah, that is right. And we'll see a warning that Jesus gives a promise that Jesus gives, and the greatest example there could ever be. So we have a warning, we have a promise, and the example. Follow along if you've got your outline on your phone or print it out. There's a warning to the rich young ruler to wake up and listen, and he can fall in the trap that we're in danger of too. There's a great promise to Jesus' followers in the form of a big, warm, joyful hug, saying, yes, it is worth it. And the greatest example of ever giving up something for the kingdom of God in the own life of Jesus and how he is the source of grace for all of us. So let's go there. We start with this warning in verses 18 to 25. And this is the real-life example of a rich, young ruler. He's an upper-middle-class, successful man, probably owns a synagogue, something like that. And he went to Jesus asking a great question. What must I do to have eternal life? And he's convinced himself, somehow in his life, that there is not part, not one part of the law of God that he hasn't perfected. Because he says to Jesus in verse 21, doesn't he? I've kept all this since I was a boy. Trouble is, even though he's kept it, he's not satisfied. He's still got questions because if you think you have to be good to get God's favor, if you think you have to be good for God to love you and give you eternal life, then there's always that temptation that you're going to feel anxious because in the back of your head you'll say, have I really been good enough? Have I really done enough? And that's probably why he comes to Jesus, even though he said, I've done it all. And so Jesus then breaks down this idea of doing good stuff for God to accept him by making him think about who is truly good. He wants him to think, actually, think about the one who is actually good, and that's God. And he says it in this really strange, strange way. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He wants to clarify what this man's idea of good is. If Jesus was good, and if only God is good, then what this rich man's saying, good teacher, is something really important and significant about Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, you must be God. He doesn't realize that when he says it. It's a flippant uh, remark at the start of the conversation. And Jesus says, whoa, hold on a minute. You're saying I'm God, right? You're saying I'm the good one. Yes? Because it's God's goodness. It's God's generosity to us that matters if you want eternal life, you see. And so then Jesus goes on and says, well, you know the commands. If God's good, you're saying I'm God, I think that's right. Well, you know the commands, don't you? The issue isn't his goodness in keeping the commands. 
As Jesus is going to show him, it's what he doesn't have that's the problem. He thought it was about what he had to do. Jesus tells him, eh, something about that. Because if he really knew the commands, he would have known that before the four that Jesus mentioned at the end, from Exodus 20, the Ten Commands, if you remember when we went through that at the start of end of last year, the first command, we're told to have no other gods. Don't make God into an image or have any idols, which are just little gods anyway. Good things turn into God things. That's what Jesus is, that's what the commands are about. You shall have no other gods before me. And so the point here is, what if the problem isn't keeping the good commands of God? What if it's a bit early and you've made something into a God instead? You've made something else God in your life. And that's the issue that this young ruler has here. Because Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. You still lack. Still. Like you've done it, yes, but you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. You have treasure in heaven. Then come. Follow me. And that is why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And he hadn't a clue that was his real problem. His wealth had made this big wall, which is why Jesus gives him three commands. Sell, give, follow. It's hard because this man valued his own self-sufficiency above his need for God. It's important to note, though, that this isn't a universal command of Jesus here. Giving away all your stuff. The gospel isn't believe in Jesus, give away everything and follow him. This is just a heart-based approach that seeks to undo something we make into God. Jesus does not tell everyone to give away wealth. In fact, next week when we meet Zacchaeus in Luke 19, Jesus tells Zacchaeus to give away anything. Zacchaeus just does it. In the New Testament, sorry, in in Acts in the early church, we see the church generously gives away their wealth, not because they were told to, because they want to. They've realized it's no longer their hold, their life, everything for them, so they give it away. The reason Jesus tells this man to do it is because eternal life is found in Jesus, not money or wealth or status. One commentator said so well, the more possessions we have, the greater gravitational pull on our hearts. And this man was pulled so close, he wasn't orbiting wealth anymore, he was sitting right in the core of that planet. Sadly, though, it's all too much. Look at verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. I love that. Very sad and very wealthy. It's a soul-crushing moment. It's the same sadness we find a little later on when Jesus is in the garden, bereaved about his crucifixion in Mark 14, 34, when sadness has overtaken him, this intense grief of knowing what's to come, of hearing this, that this man experienced. I mean, how would you feel being this man here? Jesus has just said to you, your whole life isn't going to count for eternity. Oh, I mean, that is a hard thing to swallow. Because after all, he didn't have money, money had him. And you've been thinking that it was all about what you had to do when the problem is actually nothing of the sort. Jesus makes no mistake about how hard this is. Wealth isn't evil, wealth isn't wrong, but it does have a unique way of stopping us from turning to Jesus and it can trip up a life of following him. And he illustrates this hardness with some great example of hyperbole. 
and it's the warning that we should heed as well. Isn't this great? How hard it is in verse 24 for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, how hard is it, Jesus? Oh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. A few weeks ago, I said how I don't like maths, and um, I'm not good at it, so I had to use Google for this, so Tyson can help me, or if you're an engineer, this might be up your alley. I needed to work out the size of a camel and a needle. So I Googled it. Camel's about 1.8 meters, give or take. A needle, I'm saying, is about 5 mil for a bigger size one, which means it's a 1 to 360 ratio of camel to needle eye that we have to fit through here. It's a lot of camel to go through a very, very small hole. And Jesus says, that is easier than for someone that has wealth to come into his kingdom. The narrow door has now been reduced to the width of an eye of a needle for the wealthy. You know what's remarkable, though, is that for many of you here, this was your very problem before coming to Jesus too. And it's the same problem that many of our friends and family have too. Our affluence, middle class, Adelaide, in Golden Grove, in the surrounding suburbs, breeds apathy. The lure of wealth and reputation and money in just a few years can can ruin us. Not just financially, I mean, that's... But spiritually and eternally. And how, how sad a struggle it is to see those you love... Our friends and family who followed Jesus once, now walking away down a silver mine of prosperity, only to see them get caught up in that and stuck for the rest of their life. Can you see how dangerous wealth can be from, from stopping you gaining eternal life? It's tricky though, isn't it? Because I imagine that many of you are here as well and have said, yes, I'm I gladly followed Jesus and I've given up this and and many of you have stories. If we were to sit down for a coffee and you would tell me, this is what life was, here was an opportunity at work, I realized it would actually lead me away from Jesus, I gave that up. There are stories of those who have decided to work for the church or do gospel work in some capacity, giving up huge amounts of money and their career and they tell their boss, I'm going to now work for the church, I think God's calling me away from this and they say, oh, well, I'll pay you triple what you're getting now, you know. Huge amounts, and they say it's not about the money. It's an incredible thing, and and some of you have done that. But brothers and sisters, it creates a problem for us still. Have you ever asked God, is it really worth it following you? You may have given up something in the past, like I said, and then now, a few years later... One, two, ten, twenty, you feel the financial pressure, you feel the pull of riches, you feel the wealth that you don't have and you you gave up and you say, is it worth it, Lord? You hear Jesus' words here and you think, "Is, is it, was it, was I right in giving it up to follow you? And the good news here is you're not alone because Jesus doesn't want anything getting in the way of following him. And so he turns to Peter, or actually Peter turns to him, I should say, and says, Jesus, I've done that. I've given everything up, my fishing business, my home, my family, my friends. I've literally followed you around Palestine and Galilee for all this time. And so Jesus gives us this great promise to those of you feeling this way. 
For Peter, it's the moment he's realized the stove's been left on at home, right? You're driving along, oh no, I've left it on, quick, go back. And, and thankfully, like most of the time, it's actually turned off. And Jesus is turning off the stove of anxiety in Peter here. Because Peter says, who can be saved? If getting saved with wealth is like a camel through a needle, what about those without it? Jesus says, oh, don't worry, Peter. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Because God makes camels fit through needles. He can do it. Impossible comes from a group of words that means powerful and able, and and it's a great contrast. It's impossible. There's no power, no ability in you to earn eternal life, to answer the man's question. But there is power in God. There is the ability of Jesus to do that. God can. And then here's this great big warm, hot chocolate, blanket on the couch on a cold day, cuddling, comforting promise that Jesus gives to Peter. Truly, truly, verse 29. He's so kind, isn't he, Jesus, at times? He's very harsh, too, and firm, but he he turned, truly, truly, it's okay, don't worry. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Notice the gaining language here. How when you let go of one, you gain another. The rich man thought he had gained, but in reality, he hadn't. I mean, Jesus says, has left for the sake of the kingdom of God. Receive many times more in this age and the age to come. Jesus doesn't say, suck it up, Peter. He says, yes, I know what you've left. I was there the moment you turned to me. Peter, in the fishing boat, and I said, come follow me. And I saw you let go of it and walk down that beach, leaving everything behind. I was there, I saw that. And for you here, and for me, Jesus saw that moment. We have done that too. I know what you've left. But don't forget that in doing so, you've gained far more than you have realized, both now and later. And don't think Jesus is referring to some sort of sneaky blessing of money here. It's out of character in this passage for Jesus to now turn around and say, oh, by the way, Peter, you've left money. I'll give you more when you follow me. It's not what he's saying at all. It's relational, right? The relationship with Jesus and those in his kingdom, two of the most common things you leave to follow him. And it's not about getting a hundred mothers either. It's about a richly fulfilling life with God in his family, a new home in him, with him, knowing where the future's going. You see, eternal life in the age to come is true treasure and riches in this life. And that's worth having. You remember last week, before, we, before the judgment, Jesus says, life's going to be pretty normal, isn't it? Eating, drinking, strong economy, weddings, marriages, money. You're just going to tick along like you normally have been. And then he warns them and says, just remember Lot's wife. Just keep your eye on the pile of salt, because she got turned to a pillar of salt when she looked back, trying to find her life in Sodom. And Jesus said, if you want to keep your life, you need to lose it. If you want to lose your life, you'll end up keeping it. What he's saying is, this is what that looks like to do it here. And brothers and sisters, this is hard, so very hard. How would you feel hearing that as a disciple? (laughs) Jesus says to each one of you, truly, truly, insert name here, I know what it's like, I know what you've left, and don't worry about the cost. 
Leave your wealth to enter the kingdom of God and see the value, the benefit, the blessing of leaving behind for the greater gain of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't want anything to get in the way of the gospel in our life. And wealth has a unique way of doing that. The lure is dangerous. The promise of wealth is dangerous. We make it our life and our God, and that rich man falls in the trap that we often have too. But Jesus gives his followers a big warm hug and says, I know. Do you know that? I mean, right now, do you know the value of the kingdom of God that is yours in Jesus? But do you know what else is amazing? is for the disciples in this moment, they didn't get the full picture of who Jesus was and what he's going to do. And you know that you can take comfort in something the disciples couldn't take comfort in right here. They did a bit later on. But right now, you can take comfort knowing that Jesus knows what it's like to give up to gain the kingdom of God. Not just knows what it's like for you to go, but he knows what it's like himself. Because the greatest example of this is in the last three verses, in 31 to 34, and Jesus says to them, soon I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, mock, insult, spit, flog and kill him. On the third day he'll rise again. But do you know what the disciples thought when they heard that? Heard that sorry. They didn't understand a thing. They didn't get it. To them, Jesus dying looked like a confusing mess of loss. They couldn't understand there was value in that. I don't get it. But then he appeared to them on the other side of the resurrection and it all clicked into place by the Spirit of God awakening their heart to true grace and wealth. And they could say then, as Paul did to a church, a church maybe like us, who once struggled with the idea of wealth and money, very eager to give it up, but then when it came to it, they've struggled to actually put their money where their mouth was. It's over in Corinthians. Second Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is pointing his disciples to his self-emptying. Paul pointed believers like you and me who struggle with this warning to the self-emptying of Jesus too. Richer than any of us could imagine. Yet for your sake became poor, leaving heaven for earth. Why? Because through his poverty, life and death, you might become rich. Jesus rich, spiritually rich, co-heir with Christ, inheriting eternal life and having a part in the kingdom of God which is to come. That is true wealth. That is true riches. Do you have that? Do you know that, brothers and sisters? And as I think about who we are as a church today, are we a church who hears the warning of Jesus here and the great promise and lives together as brothers and sisters, all with different incomes, all with different jobs, all with different financial situations, who show that our true wealth is in the kingdom of God? Are we a church who take comfort and comfort others with the great promise of Jesus here, that those that come to our gathering who have given up great costly things to follow Jesus, are reminded that being part of the kingdom of believers is a greater wealth than anything else they could have. Are we a church that gladly would give up our wealth, not only to gain the kingdom of God, but to strengthen those who have given up more than money, but family and friends and reputation and homes and jobs, 
just to be called a Jesus follower. I know I want to be a gathering like that. That values the kingdom of God and uses the wealth I have to show the love of Jesus so that others too can know the truth of that verse. You can be richer than ever imagined, but it's not in the places you're looking. Won't you come to that God? Wealth is a hard thing. Jesus doesn't want anything to get in the way of the kingdom of God flourishing in our life. So maybe look to Jesus this week, his generosity, and maybe realize that he will always be enough. Always be enough. So maybe you have a coffee today. You'd like to ask someone, how does the words of Jesus, of the greater blessing of belonging to him, verse 29 to 30, how does that encourage you to follow him this week? How does the blessing and the joy of knowing Jesus being in his kingdom, how does that encourage you to follow him this week? In the face of whatever may come, whatever financial uncertainty you have, how does that encourage you? Maybe you'd like to think about it and, and share that or ask someone what it is for them as you have a coffee.